Well, welcome everyone uh, to the virtual world of the Eastside Freedom Library. Uh, we're sorry you're not all in here with us, um, but uh, I'm here along with colleagues saying Manny Rats about Carla Reilly and Clarence White, uh, trying to make this technology work uh, so that we can have a good conversation today with our special guests. Dave Zirin and Mikkel Wright. Um, we are focusing on sports activism and equity uh, through a conversation with Dave and Mikkel, and then we will be inviting you uh, to enter comments and questions in the chat on your Zoom, or if you're watching on Facebook uh, through the comment function. Um, we had, as I said, hoped to have this event in person, uh, but the resurgence of the COVID virus uh, led us to be cautious and to do this event online. Um, I'm thrilled uh, to be joined virtually uh, by my former student and colleague and someone I now look to for wisdom, Dave Zirin. Um, Dave was named one of Utney Reader's 50 visionaries who are changing our world. Um, he is the first sports editor at The Nation magazine, and he writes at The Nation. He blogs and posts at Edge of Sports. Um, he has a very significant presence in the conversations about the place of sports um, in American, particularly American political life. Um, you know that we have a lot of books here at the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, I want to mention the titles of the books that Dave has written that we have. Um, Bad Sports, How Owners Are Ruining the Games We Love. Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy. Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down. The Muhammad Ali Handbook. Um, and I will say parenthetically that Dave just pointed out to me that though he was credited as an advisor on the Ken Burns film, um, he takes no responsibility for the film uh, whatsoever. Um, continuing with the, the list of books, A People's History of Sports in the United States, 250 Years of Politics, Protest, People, and Play, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, uh, something jointly written with Michael Bennett, and there is now an adaptation of this book for young readers. Welcome to the Terror Dome, Terror Dome, The Pain, Politics, and Promise of Sports. What's My Name, Fool, Sports and Resistance in the United States. The John Carlos story, and Jim Brown, um, Last Man Standing. So by my count, that's 10 books. That's a pretty impressive, as we would say, oeuvre uh, that Dave has produced. Um, and today, at Dave's suggestion, um, he is being joined by Mikkel Wright. Mikkel is a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at the University of Minnesota. Her primary research focuses on the sociology of media, the sociology of mental health, collective memory and trauma, and identity. She is specifically interested in how digital communities 
which can be simultaneously encouraging and hostile, constitute the identity development of black and brown adolescent girls. Mikkel is a former Division I athlete who organized Taking a Knee in 2016 and has much to share from that experience. So what we're going to do uh, this afternoon is Dave is going to make a presentation, Mikkel is going to respond, then if the technology holds up, they will have a conversation. Um, I might use my position of power and privilege to weigh in and ask a question or two, and then we will start to field the comments and questions that you might be typing in. So I'm going to shut up and disappear and leave things to my dear friend, Dave Zirin. Dave. Peter, an absolute honor to be doing this with you, to be doing this for the library. Uh, all, all of us are just incredibly proud about the work you've done. Uh, you know, outside the, the walls of McAllister College. It's incredibly important and impressive and inspiring. Um, so, yeah, so I've written book number 11. It's called The Kaepernick Effect. It's about the people themselves uh, who took a knee after Colin Kaepernick took a knee to protest police violence and racial inequity. And I think that uh, this issue of Colin Kaepernick and why people take a knee is so important because I'm so scared that this is going to get memory hold. This idea of all these hundreds, if not thousands, of young athletes who took a knee after Colin Kaepernick because it constitutes something bigger than just Colin Kaepernick. It constitutes a national movement and even more than just a national movement. See, let me take a step back and explain why I decided to write this book in the first place. Um, I was having a conversation with John Carlos, the 1968 Olympian, who, of course, raised his fist on the metal stand. And John Carlos said to me, uh, you know what, Dave? So many people raise their fists at track meets around the country after we raised our fists in Mexico City. And the very amateur historian in me was like, what? You know, people raised their fists in 1968 at athletic events. I didn't know that part of the story. And I thought I knew the whole story because I wrote John Carlos's memoir with him. And when I started to investigate that, I came up against the dead end that you might imagine since it's been over 50 years uh, since 68. But it did make me think long and hard about all these stories of young people who took a knee. And usually these things are kind of what you would call a one-off story. Like there would be a story about this high school in Detroit or that high school in Minneapolis, this middle school in Beaumont, Texas, that college in Idaho, all of these different places about, you know, athletes who just said enough is enough and they took a knee. And uh, for me, like my head was just like, oh my goodness, we need something that's holistic. We need something that covers all of this and tells it as one cohesive history of this revolt of young athletes, a revolt of a generation on the athletic fields of this country. So I started working on the book at the start of the pandemic, and that was actually uh, a lot easier than you might think, uh, because all these high school and college kids who I wanted to talk to who took a knee, a lot of them were at home and happy to talk, because that was when we were all really shut down and hunkered down inside. And, you know, people usually, I don't know about your dealings with, uh, 
young folks, but you know, usually it's a text or nothing. You know, you call and they think it's an emergency of some kind, like you're trapped under a couch or something. You know, you, you know, I know when I call my 17 year old daughter, she's usually like, hello, what's wrong? I'm like, nothing's wrong. She says, oh, I thought it was an emergency because you were calling. So the phone call is a delicate thing to the generation uh, younger than myself. But I was able to really connect with these young folks because they were home and very bored and they shared a lot with me about their experience taking a knee. And then I realized that the far more interesting story wasn't the taking of the knee and what led up to that, but the aftermath. And that's certainly true in Mikhail's case. And it was such an honor and a privilege to um, interview Mikhail as part of this project. But I was really into the aftermath because I started teasing out common threads of all these different stories. And let's be clear, people took a knee in red states, blue states, rural areas, urban areas. You're kidding me. Hello? I hope I'm still here. That was a disaster. And folks, I, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. My computer just shorted out. Um, but if I'm still here and still going, I'm gonna see. I'm gonna just keep talking. If that's all right, <laughs> Peter's looking at me like I'm 19, 19. in a, <laughs> in a <laughs> class I'm not understanding, but trying to BS my way through it. Um, because, but but I want to be very clear about like what, what's not BS at all. I was just talking to these young people and re really speaking with them and learning something about their experience. Um, and what I, but that, that, even, that even changed in the summer of 2020. Um, in the summer of 2020, you had, of course, the largest demonstrations in the history um, of the United States after the police murder of George Floyd, as folks in the Twin Cities know all too well. And I got in touch with a lot of the folks that I'd been interviewed, and all of them were in the struggle we're in the movement. And that was incredibly impressive to me because it got me realizing that, you know, while many roads may have led us to the summer of 2020, one of them runs through the athletic fields of the United States. And, you know, that to me made me realize that, okay, what we're dealing uh, with right now in this country is nothing less than a generational movement as much as it is anything else. And I feel like in the future, what we're looking at is a collision course between Mitch McConnell's America and, for lack of a better word, Colin Kaepernick's America. Or even better than saying Colin Kaepernick's America, I want to say uh, Trayvon Martin's America. Because when I spoke to the young folks about this book, the, the name that they kept summoning was that of Trayvon Martin as something generational that made them feel like they had to do something. And, you know, when Colin Kaepernick took that knee, it really made them realize that there was something that they could do. And that's all I've got to say. I want to stop there because I'm far more interested in what Mikhail has to say than what I have to say. You make me sound so much cooler than I actually am, Dave. It's, it's not right. <laughs> um, well, I'm so grateful and excited to be here today. Um, I, you know, the power of media got, got connected, connected with Dave through um, a tweet, 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 tweet that, that got shared with me. And, you know, it was like a shot in the dark. Like, sure, yeah, like, this is a really cool project. I would love to, you know, work with that. Um, and then I just kind of started, you know, reflecting. I, 
Uh, it was, was a rough, rough time for me at Santa Barbara, um, so I should backtrack. I did four years um, and I played basketball at UC Santa Barbara, uh, and it was, you know, exactly what anyone would hope it would be, you know, a great location, um, get to play basketball for, you know, a majority of my day. That, that's what I came for. That was like, you know, my dedicated, my dedicated reason to being there, and then, you know, I was finally feeling in a place that I was like doing what I wanted to do in school, in school. I was excelling, I was interested in my classes, um, it was all kind of working out. I then, um, what is it, the summer of 2016, I, you know, met with, we had like a rough summer, it was called a Castile, um, Terrence Crutcher, I think, and Austin Sterling, maybe all three of like in at least apart. Um, and I remember getting an email from my coach, checking in with me, and I was like, you know what, like, you know, a couple of us have been talking, I really want to talk to you about something that's, that's going on. And, you know, for the most part, they were all ears. They were wanting to support this movement, wanting to support where we stood. Um, and I understood, and I understood that I mean, the majority of the team is, is black women at this point. You know, there's 13 of us, eight, nine of us are black women, really, really sitting with this, right? This is the first time. I remember the year before um, sitting with my teammates talking about Sandra Bland and what that meant. And the year before that, you know, it's, it's every year for us, every year. It was even seeming like every summer. It was, it was a lot. Like we we're connecting over the summer, our time that's supposed to be our rest and our break to mourn, to feel sad, to check in to make sure that we're okay with what's going on in the world. Um, so, you know, we decided what, what we're going to do, what's, what's best for us um, is to, you know, have some sort of demonstration. That, that's what needed to happen. Um, and we, you know, met with it as a team and we felt passionately about kneeling. You know, we, we had just gotten back. Colin Kaepernick had just kneeled and we had just started summer, um, summer training, summer workouts and things like that. Um, we talked, we chatted. We seemed to have an understanding of where people were and how they felt. You know, I remember, you know, some tears, some hugs. It was just, it was okay for the time being for us. Um, as time got closer to the start of the season, yeah, I, I think people got a little bit more weary about the plan. Um, we had one more final meeting about what we were going to do, and it became a 50-50 split. Um, I would say less than, or more than a 50-50, less than a 50-50 split. About, you know, 70-30. Um, 70% of us saying, we're doing it, like, we're kneeling, this is it, it's happening. The 30% saying, we just don't feel comfortable doing that, um, you know. I remember some of the responses. So there's a time and place for everything. Um, you know, a time and place. My grandfather's in the military. I just don't believe kneeling is the right approach. And you know, for some of us, it was like, okay, it's time to step up to the table, and people are backing down. Um, so I think at a standstill with a game the next day, um, we decided that pretty much to each their own. Right? If you want to kneel in this game. Please do. If you don't, you know, we can find a way to understand, um, knowing that you support us in this movement. Um, the next day came. I remember being nervous. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like anybody was going to back down. I just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, you know, these people have seen me. I'm, I'm a singer. These people have seen me four years. 
Um, I, just, I, just, I, I would love to share that. I talk to parents about it. They get their support, friends' support. Um, we get out there. They say, please rise to the national anthem. Um, eight of us kneel. And I think that moment is when it really sinks in. There's booing, um, people leaving the stands, people throwing things. I mean, you know, I don't want to be not throwing rocks, but, you know, water bottles. Um, you know, a couple of cussers being thrown around. Um, the biggest thing is watching people that, you know, I've had sat at their house for dinner. Um, they take me places. They come and visit me. They make sure I'm good when we're traveling. You know, they're, they're my support system through this program and watching them leave the gym. Shaking their head, just completely disappointed. And I think that really set the tone for the year to come. Um, I think, you know, I don't, don't want to give it all to away right now, but I know Dave and I were just going to go back and forth and talk. But I remember this feeling that I had at the end, right? So, you know, we played. I actually think we had, like, a great game. We blew the team out. It was this high energy. And we got in the locker room celebrating. But you could see the difference you know, it was like celebrating a win, but kind of suffering with this loss that needs to be addressed. Um, and I remember telling one of my coaches, you know, we're in the huddle, we're next to each other. And I'm just like, you know, thinking. She's like, you good? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just really, you know, I just, I said, I couldn't believe they were going to act that way. I didn't, I feel kind of blindsided. And she looked at me and said, well, what did you think they were going to do? Like, what would you expect? That, that was expected of them. Um, but not that's expected of them because of who they are, but she seemed to be saying, you know, that's exactly what I knew was gonna happen. I would react the same way. You know, it was, it was a different kind of vibe. And I think from that moment on, it was, you know, a rough but strong year um, and a lot of things happened, but I'm, I'm gonna stop for now. And uh, I guess see where, where Dave and I are gonna go. <laughs> Oh no, I can't hear. Dave, can you hear me? I can't hear you. How about now? Oh, there you go. Okay. Well, I was just saying how horrified I was by your presentation. No, I'm just kidding. I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to end it. I'm, I'm, ex I'm exiting. <laughs> yeah, no, no, just, just uh, glory, you know, glory be. Like, I'm so grateful that we were able to connect and that you're a part of this book. It, 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 your experience honors the book, and I just very much appreciate you uh, for being a part of it. But yeah, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, a big theme in the book that a lot of folks have picked up on is the theme of coaching, and how you really do have different, two different kinds of coaches is the way a, a former Baltimore Colt named Joe Ehrman always taught it to me. He said, you've got transactional coaches and transformational coaches. The transactional coach is in it for really what's in it for them personally or what's in it for the institution. Uh, a trans, because they know that that transactionally will benefit them. A transformational coach is somebody whose first priority is always uh, the students under their charge and is about trying to uh, mature people, no matter what their age, hold up a standard that makes them become better people. Uh, and that's the big difference. What, what kind of, I'd like you to speak about your coaches, if you don't mind, 
and you don't have to use that framework of transactional and transformational, but, but if you could speak about the, the relationship with your coaches, not just when it happened, but years down the line as well. Right. And I think that, um, is what made this so hard. Uh, I felt like we had a transformational, uh, coaching staff and it may be turned into transactional. Um, I think that I, I prided myself on, you know, being that someone like as a captain, it was, it, I was someone that I could talk to, uh, my coach could talk to me. I could talk to my coach and felt open about that. Um, and it stayed like that, you know, we started this conversation, they were engaged with this conversation. They wanted to support us in any way possible. And, um, you know, I always say when crap hit the fan, it really kind of became okay. Like for some of us, uh, you know, with nothing to lose, it seemed as though like, ah, let's, let's drop it. And it's like, this isn't something we just up and drop. Right. Um, we even, it, we got, went through this standstill period where it's like, um, we were basically asked, well, what, what else is to come? What are, what else are you going to do? Are you just going to kneel all season? And it was like, well, we need to, no, but you know, we haven't really gotten anywhere. We've had a bunch of meetings, you know, we've had diversity meetings and team meetings and sessions and tears and fights. And so at this point, you know, we haven't gotten anywhere. Um, there was this little period where it was like, let's just try to not kneel for this amount of time. It was in exchange for not kneeling. I, I think it was like from mid November to the end of December, they were going to work out some, um, you know, maybe we could do shirts or maybe we can do patches or maybe we could do, there was something, you know, um, and it came down to it that, you know, it wasn't actually supported in that way. And if this was something we wanted to do, it was on us. They, they, you know, athletic department said, this is not something that we're supporting. This is not coming down from us and saying that we're allowing this. And it became, okay, so what are you guys going to do? Um, and I think that's what was hard because it went from having this support system. I remember, you know, frustrations were high, practices were quiet. Um, and the coach turned from someone I felt like I could go to, to someone who were treating us like children right yeah. yelling and, and if i'm you know i'm a grown-up <laughs> i'm a grown-up i always tell my mom i'm a grown-up you know um and as an adult i've always talked to you like an adult and now you're you know talking to me like i'm a freshman someone who doesn't know what's going on someone who's you know not about to go into the real world and do these things that i'm setting out to do so that was really tough for i think a lot of us it felt like that respect level it just wasn't the same anymore um mm. Yeah. But then, you know, your coach contacted you in 2020, right? Uh, yeah. So I guess basically after we decided, you know what, screw it. We're going to do the thing. You know, we, we put a lot of work into it. We set, um, uh, we called it our social uh, injustice awareness game. And, you know, we wrote this kind of one pager and put it out. And, you know, I had, to, I had my mom, my sister, other, you know, the BSU. Um, a lot of organizations going out and helping us, you know, we said, come to our game, wear all black and kneel with us or sit, you know, we had a section of people who were dedicated to that. And it meant the world to us. And I think a lot of people didn't think it would happen. You know, I remember horror stories, people throwing the papers away and things like that. Um, so like, you know, for me personally, that's what I remember. I remember leaving and kind of not talking to coaches, you know, they weren't really so much interested in what was next for me. And I was okay with that. I was, 
I told myself I was moving on. Basketball and athlete was something I was. You know, I'm going to grad school. This is this is my new leaf. Um, so I kind of didn't really talk about it. You know, I I had my things that had happened in life, like everyone else, and that was that was the end of it. Um, 2020 came. George Floyd came. Uh, it was just a rough time to be here in in the world, right? But it, it's I always tell people it's so different when it's outside. It's 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 it, I don't even know how to explain it. You know, you're watching it on TV and knowing, you know, I drive down that street. I'm I go to that Target. I I've been right there. You know, um, it's just it's completely different. But it it was a call. Um, I remember seeing the call and I was just kind of like, hmm. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait see what see what it is. You know, I even called. Hey, did so and so call you? Yeah, they called me. I didn't answer. Oh, okay, well we need. I'm gonna call back and see what's up. I called and it was a you know a 20 minute phone call. Um, checking mm. in. How am I? Uh, kind of I guess trying to get a feel for what's going on here in the cities, um, which to me was, you know, a little weird because I know they have connections here. Their families from here. So I'm the last person you should be calling to find out what's going on in, you know, a place where your family is. But okay, it's cool. You know, things are this, that, and the other. Um, and then it kind of ended with, you know, I just, I've really taken the time to learn, to understand what's happening. And while I do get that, I feel like I wasn't asking we as you know women on the team weren't asking for much we were asking for support um it i had a hard time taking in like you know what i had to really sit and study and understand what black lives matter means you know what what it means to know that black people shouldn't be dying in the streets uh, i've never felt like i had to sit and study that i didn't have to google it and research it that was enough for me knowing that Black lives should be mattering, period. There was no clause connected to that. Um, so, you know, that was kind of the end of it. And then I guess now reflecting, it's been a year I've seen, um, you know, more activism, more movements. I had some former team teammates reach out to me and ask, like, you know, what I, what the, what I needed from them in support. Um, and I was like, you know what, I don't, I don't need anything. Oh, well, like, I'm working on this. Can you let me know, like, how it sounds? I can't. I can't. I just, I can't. I can't do this this new work for you now that you want to be on board, you know? Um, so that was tough. I think that was tough for me because now it's like, you know, we're social justice activists in this way, and we're uh, doing all these things to support this cause, which I applaud now in a space where I'm like, I'm glad that you're having this social justice walk and uh, awareness and having small things and Black, Life, Black Lives Matter shirts are easy to put on and take pictures for, but this, this is not the same four years ago, you know? And that's the crazy thing about it, it was four years later. Um, so there's a new, new girls who might not know that experience, but those coaches are still there, right? And they, I, I just can't imagine that they can just sit and think about the four years and think this is okay. It was tough for a lot of us, like, I mean, I don't think any of us, you know, we don't check into alumni games. We don't, it's, it, I, we didn't leave with that great taste, right? It was a very bitter taste for a long time. It was easy to avoid going to those things. And it sounded like your coach had given you multiple burdens over the years. Like first the burden of having to explain something that frankly should be obvious. And then the burden for you to, I guess, forgive them or 
offer yeah. some sort of that's also putting a burden on you instead of yeah. them doing what I think the, de the demand of the movement needs to be, which is that this needs to be a shared burden if we're ever going to end this kind of indiscriminate police violence. Right. And that's something I had to deal with. I was like, well, you know, it's people change. That's we're, we're living in a new space. This is a new, you know, four years ago, um, I wouldn't be doing this or that, but I had to really sit, you know, and talk to people who were there four years ago, you know, my partner who was there four years ago and remembering what I was going through in that time, how tough it was, like my, my parents, my sister, you know, talking to them and it's like, this, this, this one isn't on you, Mikhail. like this one can't be on you, even though I felt that pull to be like, you know what, uh, you know, that weird feeling where you're like, well, at least they're, they're listening now, at least they're trying now, like, let's move forward. Um, and I don't, I, I wasn't ready to do that. I, could, I, I couldn't let that go. I think for me personally, it, it was, we were still, um, you know, young adults being molded and we confided and trusted this space. This was family. These are my sisters. This was like people that I would go to for things. And I just felt so isolated. Um, isolated within small groups. I remember one time we were traveling and, you know, the six of us, all black women were like, just talking about like how uncomfortable it felt. And it became this issue that we were separating people. And it's like, I'm not purposely separating anybody. I just, I don't feel comfortable anymore having this conversation with people that I used to have this conversation with. Um, so like dealing with that was just really, really tough. And trying to decide now, you know, if, you know, in 2020, is this something worth giving my, is, is it a, a wound worth reopening? And it didn't feel like it. I, it, it just wasn't worth it. Mm. I, I get you, definitely, um, on that front. Uh, you said something that really caught my ear because I, I heard this in some of the other interviews that I did where you said they, you know, raised the issue of maybe you could wear t-shirts or maybe you know you could bow your heads and hold hands during the anthem uh, i mean so much is put forward to prevent that one gesture of taking a knee which is you know a gesture of of humility and prayer what is it in your mind about taking a knee that so seems to upset uh the people who are in the minders of normality the people who are in charge of the status quo. I mean, it, it drives them to fits of, either it drives them to fits of distraction or it drives them to fits of panic that other people are gonna be upset by it. Like, but, but t-shirts are fine, holding hands is fine. What do you think it is about the gesture which puts them um, on edge? I, I, you know, I've really tried to think about it and I just, I'm still not sure what it is. I'm wondering if it's this, I mean, because, you know, the, the military uh, myth was debunked, right? Like, uh, Colin Kaepernick said, well, no, you know, I met with someone and I, I did sit the first time. And then they said, hey, that's kind of disrespectful. Maybe you could kneel. And it was like, okay, well, like, this is a conversation we're having and something that I could make, make work. Um, so I heard, you know, I remember, well, my grandfather's in the military and he comes to this game. And, and I was like, well, my father was, is, a, is a vet also, right? And I mean, it, 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 we have to drop this. This can't be the reason, right? I remember um, 
we were asked, and I mean, we were asked to not kneel when we had a veterans game, uh, a game mm. on Veterans Day in Iowa. I think it was Iowa. It's just not the time and place, especially now on Veterans Day. And they know like, this has nothing to do with the veterans. Yeah. Um, but I think the issue is, and when it came down to it, it it's, I, I think of the position of power. This was something that, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick and athletes came up with, but we stuck with it. Like, this is the thing we're doing. Um, but also when it came down to it, the other things weren't really given either. You know, we were even willing to put it on hold for shirts, but you know, we couldn't wear Black Lives Matter shirts. Um, Let's do patches. Some people felt uncomfortable with patches. It got down to so we were, and you know, I, I regret this that we were so willing to take a little bit. Um, it was like, well, let's just put a, a black band right here on our jersey. And you know, even that, we were willing to be like, okay, you know, something to get us all on the same page. And even that was a no when it came down to it, right? So, um, you know, our parents. Uh, one of my teammates, her parent, uh, purchased Black Lives Matter shirts for all of us because. We didn't have them. And another parent, you know, asked us if we needed help with any printing. You know, I was the night before at Office Depot <laughs> running 500 copies of our statement and letter. And, you know, it became very, if you want to get this done, do it yourself. I'm not sure, though, what the, that, that knee really ticks people off. And I just haven't quite placed it. And I'm, I'm thinking that it's maybe having this power, right? Like I'm setting out to do something. This person who, um, you know, you, is, you think is just an athlete, right? Um, I always told them, like, they don't understand because after these games, you know, when I take off the jersey and put on a, a sweatshirt and sweatpants that don't have any affiliation with the university and I'm walking home, it, no one stops me or cares about me because I play on this team or, you know, no one stops me and cares about me because I scored 10 points tonight, no one stops me and cares about me because um, I've done this, this, and this community event at the Boys and Girls, they don't care. I'm another black person walking home that day. I'm not an athlete, I'm not a, a captain, I'm, I'm none of those things. Um, and I feel like that sense of power that athletes were given with this movement um, is what really kind of shook the table. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I have no idea either. I mean, the psyche of the right wing in this country, it never ceases to uh, make me wonder like where, where logic ends and fantasy begins. But so who knows what it is about the knee that specifically tickles uh, the, the, the most reptilian part of the lizard brain. But I do have a couple of just random theories that... One is, I think that the people who want to preserve the status quo, preserve rights, police to do whatever the hell they want, and preserve power structures and power arrangements that do exist in sports, you know, I think they fear it because it's so easy to replicate. I mean, and, and they intuit the, the power of it as a symbolic um, image. So, you know, that's, that, that is what I argue in the book. Like, that, that's Colin Kaepernick's sort of gift to the movement is much is, is not so much a set of politics as it is a method by which you as an athlete can showcase your dissent with the world. Like, oh, this, cause so many of the people I talked to were already upset and already looking to do something. And then they see Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. do it. And it's like, oh, Eureka, you know, I can do that light bulb going off over the head. That's something I can do. So I, I think that that's part of it is, is fear of its ability to replicate itself. I also think that like it's, they see it as an affront, 
-hmm. like like in the old days when if a social better is crossing the street and you're crossing the street and you choose not to get out of the way you know that's that's about a lot more than just maybe a little dust on your shoe you know that's mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're actually messing with the whole order of things and now you're pulling the string on a sweater and who knows where the hell that's going to end um this because i mean the nfl in particular and you know the nfl is such a powerful cultural foghorn in this country it absolutely depends on labor and racial discipline in order to survive and be this multi 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 billion dollar business and so colin kaepernick takes that knee other players take that knee and we all saw it like th this was you know th this was like someone saying the emperor had no clothes like everybody was shocked because it's like that's just n not what you're supposed to do it reminded me of the muhammad ali quote where he said i don't have to be what you want me to be and once you start saying that in the nfl it gets really dangerous because this is and not just for the national football league because this is the number one entertainment that we have in this country uh, by any measure of ratings or or interest or interaction and it's also built on this really profound racial contradiction of you know you have 70 percent of the athletes are are black and yet you look at the number of the people who have ownership papers of the franchises uh there are there are no there's no one who is black in those positions and if you look at coaches and executives it's it's absolutely embarrassing and all of these things get challenged when colin takes that knee and i think that's also something people intuited because they all found out too it's amazing like what happened in the nfl replicated itself in cities and towns around the country where you know that knee hits the ground and the next thing you know it's you know it's on basically and uh that's quite quite a story and it was a story i mean i personally just felt like wasn't being told but, i agree i think i i just like you said it's this i think you said it first the first thing you said was just this power to say you know i don't like what's going on here mm -hmm. and um i even think like you know we a lot of people were so quick to tell you know cap to well if you don't like it you know if you don't like it you don't have to be here if you, if you mm -hmm. don't like what we do here in the NFL, you don't have to be here. And, you know, we say that for everything. Um, and it's not that simple. I mean, you know, on a scale of, it's, it's so easy to say, well, they're, you know, they're making millions of dollars. They're this, that, and the other. But I mean, I, I could make a single million <laughs> to, to be, you know, there. Um, and, you know, I still even got, well, like, you know, they, they pay for your, you're on a full ride. It, you you should be grateful for this opportunity, not so quick to tarnish it, right? And I'm like, I am grateful for this opportunity. Um, so grateful that I've been in this position to feel comfortable in voicing concerns with things I have. Um, you know, I've I've made it to this point, and you know, like I said, my last year that I feel comfortable calling up a coach to say, hey, this is what's going on. Um, excuse me, I feel comfortable talking to my teammates and saying, hey, like, what, what are people thinking about this? Like, how are we going to work this out? I, I've, I've grown in this space. And to then say, you know, stop growing. This is enough. You've, you've gone too far. You've taken this too far. Um, was, you know, it sucks. That's the, just the basic way I can think of saying it mm -hmm. sucks to, to get that response. 
Um, I mean, I feel like it was kind of back and forth. I felt like some days they were supportive, some days they weren't. If they got a call from a booster about them pulling money, maybe that was the day they weren't supportive. If, you know, someone said, well, you know, this will die down. Maybe that was the day they just decided they were going to stay on our side lightly, but, you know, tread lightly as well. So it was just, um, it was tough knowing that, you know, when it comes time to me, you know, stepping up and feeling comfortable in that space that the people who are supposed to support that kind of did the complete opposite. Mm. You just said uh, two things that, that also come through in the book with a, with, with, with a interesting commonality in terms of the response to people. The first is, and I know you get it as college athletes, but you hear it at the pro level and even at the high school level, this idea of gratitude and why aren't you grateful? And it's this idea of, you know, you're playing a sport and therefore you should be thanking everyone around you every day for the opportunity to be able to live in this toy department of life where you're playing this sport as if blood, sweat, and tears didn't get That's you to that point. Yeah. And that gratitude trope has been practically exclusively levied against the black athlete. It's like yeah. how... By, by, by white commentary. Like, how are you not grateful for everything we have given you with, you know, with, with, and there's so much um, paternalism and, and in, that, in that approach. The other thing that you said that is, relates to this very strongly is when people, I said to Kaepernick, like, why don't you just leave the job? Donald Trump said, why don't you just leave the country? Mm -hmm. And it's that other great, um, stick that's been used against black athletes, which is the, and actually I should say black rebels, which is the question of citizenship. And are you really a citizen of this country if you criticize it? While the other side would say that, you know, criticism and protest is actually the first duty in a free society. But, you know, but the other side, which I guess supports, you know, that, that level of freedom when it's about ransacking the Capitol building, but when it's about fighting against racism, fighting uh, for the most basic, basic anti-racist legislation, human rights, fighting against qualified immunity for the police, like these, you know, fundamental issues which have been taken up by the movement. Uh, it's not just let's agree to disagree or let's have the debate out, not, not even close. Instead, it's you are not from here. Who are you to weigh in on what this country should be when you are not of this country? I mean, it, there's a there's a cruelty to it, and it's I mean, and, and I'm so surprised I shouldn't be that it keeps getting used into 2021. I mean, we're talking, you know, over a century of this, um, you know, dating back, going straight antebellum if we want to about this, and it's it's time to say absolutely, and we got to these tropes when they're levied against athletes because they'll be used against people well the world sports absolutely and i just i always said it wasn't you know um i would say you know if a kindergartner or a, a fifth grader is running for student council right and they they want to be the president they promise the school will have uh, pizza every day for lunch don't worry about it right like that's not going to happen. It's a far-fetched dream uh, for anyone, especially a fifth grader trying to get votes, right? But I just don't feel like asking 
for you know equality and for black annihilation in the streets to to stop like that that doesn't seem like such an ask that uh, and that's what always sits with me that's not this massive thing that we must you know address and just change like it shouldn't be this complicated or this hard for you for people to understand that we don't want uh to die you know and that's when it just that's what it boils down to like we don't want to fear living every day because killing us doesn't matter to you or it doesn't matter to the rest of the world and the country right and um and that's just tough that's that's a tough space to live in i'm just thinking about you know times i've been pulled over in santa it's just like this very tough feeling um that a lot of people are living with every day having to prove that i'm supposed to be here that i'm that this life that i live is worth living it just it doesn't seem fair it isn't fair um you know it's so funny. I was just thinking about this conversation. One thing, Mikhail, that we uh, are sort of assuming among our listening audience is that they agree with us that sports is a perfectly appropriate place to have these kinds of political demonstrations. Like that's sort of been our starting point for this whole conversation. Like, and may maybe we moved a little fast. Um, so what do you say when people say to you, even something like, I agree with this, your struggle but sports, you know, that should be a politics-free zone. What do you say to that? Well, it's not politics-free. We, we play the national anthem anyway. We have yeah. veterans games anyway. So, I mean, we can't pick and choose when we decide we want to be, you know, political or not political. Um, and I think, you know, that's been, as you know, Dave, I'm a big LeBron fan, the whole shut up and dribble that whole movement, it wasn't, this isn't where we talk about politics and like, uh, you know, you're not a politician, you don't need to discuss this. Um, I would say like, this is, this is political, yes, but this is also livelihood. We're at the point where black people are being murdered. That is, there, this shouldn't be a, Black Lives Matter has become this controversial statement. Um, you know, I was in a class and someone said, this may be contra controversial, but, and it's like, this This doesn't have to be controversial. This <laughs> dealing with, um, you know, these things are not controversial. Um, talking about this out loud shouldn't be controversial. This, uh, we realistically should not be fighting over if Black Lives Matter or not. Um, you know, this, well, Black Lives Matter, well, all lives matter. You know, this This has become political. This, this, this wasn't uh, that, and now it is that. Um, so that, that's what I say. It's like, well, we wouldn't have a national anthem to kneel at if there wasn't a national anthem. So we can't pick and choose which ones work because they make you comfortable or uncomfortable. Um, even now, I still don't stand for the national anthem. Um, you know, people don't like that. But at you know live games, people are walking and eating popcorn and you know mm -hmm. on the phone waving down the person so they can come sit with them. But me taking a moment um, to not stand really just puts it over. So I, I think, uh, you know, we got to keep the energy consistent if that's how we feel about it. But I don't think, I, I think it's not that. It's it's so deeply rooted, um, uh, a deeply rooted issue that people want to act like don't exist, but it does. It's like, I, I try to explain it to people like, 
people who say sports and politics shouldn't mix, what they're really saying is a sp is sports and a certain kind of politics shouldn't mix because they're all for the politics that dovetail with their own ideas about patriotism, about militarism, about you know U.S. supremacy. I mean, these things, when represented before sporting events, are treasured by some of the same people who tell what really amounts to you know black athletes to shut up and play, shut up and dribble. And you know they, they, they fear someone like LeBron James more than they loathe someone like LeBron James. It's a fear factor. You know, first of all, his, his social, even when Trump was still on Twitter, his social media reach was bigger than Donald Trump's. And you know that made him mad. And <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a bizarre child. I'll never forget when LeBron called Donald Trump a bum. That you bum. Me, you bum. And like so many people, you, I, I understand that, that it's, we we laughed because it was funny, but we all felt the same way. Like so good at this point. Like I agree. I I, I agree. You're absolutely right. So it's just um, I think that's a good point. Like you know this this fear this this fear that knowing that we could stop being athletes and really change the world. We just I just really like to you know play basketball. That LeBron just really likes to play basketball, but that doesn't mean you know, that's all he should be doing, right? And I think this fear that now, um, you know, I do do more. I, I, I'm I engaged in, in, and it's not saying that people weren't doing that, right? But it's like, um, I can and I will because I want to, right? Um, and that that component, I think, is what's scary for some people. That, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I play this game and then, you know, I'm on my way to doing something else. And people are listening to me and people are listening to us and, and getting ramped up and engaged. So um, I absolutely, I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to do a uh, compare and contrast, like who has meant more to the movement or anything. But when we talk about Colin Kaepernick, you know, amazing, particularly to me, the most amazing part of his legacy is the ripple effect that I write about in the book. But uh, we also can't ignore what LeBron James's very political presence has met has to the NBA. And I've gotten in debates and arguments about this with other folks because they think LeBron should do more or he didn't do something at this point, didn't say anything at this point. And I want to say, look, you know, he's not Mandela. He's a basketball player. He's not going to get all of this right all of the time. But the fact that he was willing to stand up and be political after the murder of Trayvon Martin in 2012, that's what really changed the game. You know, that was four years before Colin Kaepernick took a knee when LeBron James posed with his teammates all wearing hoodies on the Miami Heat. And that was really the first sports politics photo to go viral on social media. And I just believe that what LeBron did was he bent the entire NBA to being a more politically open organization because once you have the player of of their generation speaking out it's a lot more difficult to make everyone else just shut up and dribble and i think that's one of the things that so enraged the fox news nation you know with their 50 state southern strategy you know because when you have someone one individual who can change the political culture of an entire sports league i mean all of a sudden that person becomes not so much an athlete that you like or dislike, but an athlete that you are for or against. And I guess I'm not just saying that to the right wing. I'm saying that 
to all the people around me who've argued with me about LeBron's influence. It's like, you got to realize that you, fine. You don't like LeBron. You didn't like him in this series. You didn't like the way he left Cleveland. You didn't like what he's done with the Lakers, whatever. You have to realize that like when it comes to LeBron, it is about, are you for the presence of LeBron or against the presence of LeBron because they're going after him. Yeah. And I think, um, I just think like, you're right. That was such a, like a monumental moment. And like, at, we are having these moments. I was um, maybe at the last, you know, talk that we had, but we were just talking about the uh, the Minnesota Lynx and what that meant in what 2016 with Philando Castile, and you know they played a game, a great game, and went to the press, and it was oh well, you know, it was Maya Moore, Lindsey Whalen, Simone Augustus, Rebecca Brunson. Um, well, let's talk about the game. How do you feel? And they said, well, we don't have to talk about the game. You watch the game. Let's talk about Philando Castillo and that Black Lives Matter and we need to be doing more and this, this. And, you know, it was silent in that room after the game. It was, a, a no one knew what to say. And I mean, it got heated, you know, the, the ripple effect of that was um, the security decided they're not coming to any more Lynx games. They're, they're not showing up because they don't feel respected. And I, you know, that line is just being missed. I say Black Lives Matter and security and police officers picked up that I don't respect them and that they should just not come to the game. And it's like, it has, you know, it has nothing to do with you. This isn't about you. This is about the respect and care of Black life. Um, mm -hmm. And like, again, that was the first time we've seen something like that where, especially for, you know, now, uh, Four years later, during during a pandemic, we have you know the the wobble, and they've completely taken on um, justice for Breonna Taylor, and are on one accord, and everyone is on the same page. They're calling Breonna Taylor's mom. They're calling Black Lives Matter activists. They're talking with Angela Davis. They're they're creating these conversations. They're doing more than just dribbling and shooting, but they're they're making a wave of change. And, um, you know, that I'm, I'm giving COVID some of that credit because it was in this small space. Um, you know, they all go to the same hotel, come back and, but still it was, it was something we've never seen before. Um, and then, you know, this is a shameless plug for everyone to go watch the, the ESPN 144 documentary about the Wubble and the WNBA and what that meant for the, you know, the Players Association to then be on one accord with players and uh, uh you know people outside and the public and everybody making this this movement but um this is just something it's it's a new wave for so many of us i think um yeah yeah and you know That's current athletes former athletes i think everyone's on board in a way we haven't seen before yeah i say to folks all the time the wine's out of the bottle on this so <laughs> you know whether there's a period of lower struggle or higher struggle coming up. The point is, is that we're in a different kind of era with athletes as far as how they see themselves politically relative to the world. And, you know, people are going to have to get with that. And, you know, you see the Republican party trying to figure out how to get with that, you know, running Herschel Walker for Senate in Georgia. And you know, that Senate seat in Georgia is something they want because that's a WNBA story too. I mean, they flipped the dang Senate for goodness sakes. No WNBA. I, I say that all the time. 
with his with his polling at nine percent. Polling at nine percent. Nine percent. I remember took, seeing those shirts. Vote Warnock. Everyone yeah. went to Google. And you know, I have people like it's tough. We we down for the WNBA because it seems like it's this silo, you know. People who watch the WNBA are probably uh pro lists of things that are going wrong in the, you know, like trying to change the world anyway. But we've seen it. It doesn't just stay in the WNBA. If that were the case, this the Senate wouldn't that wouldn't have happened. It started, like you said, nine percent. And after that, it's like what it jumped to like thirty percent um, after after they had their first vote Warnock and uh, what is it their Loeffler shirts and things like that. Like it transpired and completely changed the game. And I think you know we can sit back and say that things happened and you know uh, people had their roles, but the WNBA also had a role. You know, like you know Stacey Abrams had a role and the. Local activists had a role, but the WNBA and the Atlanta Dream also had a very large role in that. Absolutely. When the story is written, you know, that needs to be uh, front and center. Because there's also then the role they played in politicizing the atmosphere of the Wubble, because they were in close contact with the NBA players as well during that mm -hmm. time. And, you know, when I interviewed um, several of the players who were at the front of the endorsed Warnock campaign, it was really interesting that they said, yeah, it wasn't just about endorsing him. It was getting on the Zoom calls with him and trying to shape his politics. So, you know, this is what it means to be a true political actor and not just somebody using your sports platform to amplify the ideas of others, but using it as a method of for, for your own action, which is amazing. Well, Mikhail, it's, uh, we've been rolling for an hour. It's felt like five minutes. And I guess this would be a time where we see if there are any questions. Call upon Peter to join us. How you doing, Peter? I'm doing great. Love listening to you both. Um, it takes me back, if I can reminisce for a moment, that uh, in the fall of 1968, uh, when I was a senior in high school in New London, Connecticut, uh, my peers and I stopped uh, standing for the national anthem at high school basketball games. We stopped um, reciting uh, the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag in the classroom. Uh, I was called into the principal's office and, and he, he actually asked me, where did I get these ideas? Was I learning this at the synagogue? Um, which was quite a revelation uh, to me. Um, and, and I wonder, I've come around over all these years as a historian to say that history is the study of change. History is not just the study of the past, uh, but it's a way of thinking about change. And I wanted to ask the two of you what do you think has changed? Um, are we in a different moment in 2021 than I was in 1968? Um, how, how, how have things changed? Um, have they progressed? Have they gotten deeper? Have we had to reinvent? Um, and, and so I wanted to start out by, by asking the two of you, 
You know, what do you think has changed over the last half century or not? Particularly in protest, we know that white supremacy, institutionalized racism, racial capitalism, that's still with us. Um, but, but are the politics of protest changing? Um, yeah, I think for me, you know, like I said, I study uh, in kind of really interested in the power of social media. So that's my immediate, that's, that's what's changed for me, right? Um, what used to be could only happen if you were there in real time, you know, now we have archives through hashtags and we can go back and look at what people are saying and doing in this moment. Um, and I also, I just, you know, I've talked about this before. It's really hard, you know, I, it's hard every time we see another one of these, um, you know, murders, uh, because it's like, well, when are things going to change? And, you know, this has been happening for so long. And, you know, we we're in a space that's both so different and we know that, but it's also so hard to feel that you're still in that same space. It's a constant back and forth I have with myself and you know my colleagues and my peers, and it's just how is it that I feel that we're in both spaces that we're moving forward and making change, but stuck in what was happening, you know, before I was here, before my parents were here, before you know, some of these things are really similar to um, moments I couldn't even imagine, right? So how how are we supposed to live with this constant? push pull. Um, but yeah, things are always changing. And I think for me, I would just short and sweet say that it's, we're, we're in a different ball game when social media has is, is involved. Yeah, I mean, I, that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, the, the phenomenon of social media means has meant, I think, something very different, Peter, when it comes to uh, the concept of solidarity, and what solidarity can look like, how quickly it can disseminate and how quickly it can grow. I mean, I was in, I interviewed because of the horrors of how um, the Haitian uh, asylum seekers are being treated at the border. I interviewed this past week a, a Haitian former NBA player named Olden Polonis, who in the early 1990s, when Bill Clinton reneged on his promise to allow access for HIV positive Haitian refugees to come into the United States, Olden Polonis went on an in-season hunger strike uh, in the NBA in protest. Now you don't hear about that story because um, it was forgotten. And when it was written about, he was excoriated by the local press because he was being selfish and bringing politics into sports. And, you know, how's he supposed to play center if he's not eating and all this stuff like that. Imagine if that happened today. Imagine if a player had the courage to go on a hunger strike because of how we are treating the Haitian asylum seekers to use one example. That person going on that hunger strike would surely be, um, they would attempt to devour him on Fox News and Fox News' various, uh, you know, leavings of other networks and whatever. But on social media, there would be like hashtags of support, there would be love being given, and there would be given the kind of, um, a kind of backbone to keep going, which, just frankly didn't exist in decades past and 
I think that makes a very that makes a bigger difference than I think people realize. One thing about being an athlete is that you have a lot of downtime, and a lot of times what they're doing is scrolling through their mentions, wondering what people are saying in this big public sphere that is social media. And so, so that's that's something that I think has been an absolute um, game changer. I would call it the the dissemination of not just solidarity but also information, like. It's, it's when I first got into these politics of thinking of sports and politics, I couldn't Google athlete politics struggle because there was no Google, there was no social media. So I, you know, had to do like my own research. But today, if there's an athlete who's interested in these issues or wants to know what John Carlos and Tommy Smith were all about, it's at their fingertips. And that, that, I think, strongly changes the contours of struggle. You know, there are areas where we're far ahead. To go directly to your question, Peter, about where we were in 1968, there are areas there where actually 1968, we would be doing a lot better. Particularly, I'm thinking of the, the integration of the labor movement with the broader left. Um, but I'm happy with where we are because the process of doing in this book put me in touch with a generation of people who I just feel like aren't going to settle for what uh, their parents and grandparents were willing to settle for. I mean, they, they, they seem so much more engaged on the question of substantive change that's not piecemeal. That's the that I find to be incredibly inspiring. Maybe we can go a little bit further on this question about younger athletes and the intergenerational transmission of ideas. And I, I think that we often, as much as we don't want to be top-down, um, we tend to be like, you should listen to the dude with wisdom. Um, and, and I remember about the time, Dave, that you were at McAllister, that we were having a series of labor conferences and uh, there was a group of young people that became a labor theater group, the Solidarity Kids Theater. And I made the mistake of introducing them at a conference as the leaders of tomorrow. And one of the kids took me aside and said, we're the leaders of today. We're not the leaders of tomorrow. And, and I wonder, you know, you started out today, Dave, talking about you know, that you wanted to interview younger athletes about the impact that Kaepernick's action and, and the idea of protest, how it was captivating them. And, um, and I, I think you and I are of a different generation and Mikel is of yet another uh, generation. And I wonder how the two of you think about, you know, sort of where the ideas are coming from um, in this younger generation and maybe what us older folks, we're all older than somebody, what us older folks can learn uh, from the way younger people are approaching the challenges that they face in making the world the kind of place that they want to live in. Mm. What a beautifully put question. Uh, Mikhail, Mikhail, do you want to start on that? Um, it's I was got me. In true top-down fashion, you should go first. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, 
I, I live with a 17-year-old who's politically very engaged, and you know, she she grabs her politics. Um, it, it's a real grab bag. Like some of it, she learns on TikTok. Some mm. of it is reading like some serious theory, you know, that that goes back about 150 years. If you, mm. you catch my drift, and and so she's. She's reading all this with, with an intensity and trying to fuse it together in conversation with her friends. So I feel like, you know, that this last, this generation, you know, they're too young even for Occupy Wall Street 10 years right. ago. So, you know, they're coming up with, like growing up with this idea of the 99% and the 1%. This isn't something that had to be bestowed onto them in their 20s or 30s or something like that, or even teens. It was growing up as a fact of, of ideological life, of understanding class on that level. And also, I think this generation is so, this is the way I've been putting it, is more demographically diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States. And I think we have to create, I think it, the future of the planet, frankly, um, is dependent on creating space to allow them to lead and to try to put forward these transformative ideas. Now, that mm -hmm. doesn't for one second, Peter, mean that people of older generations don't have a role, you know, in figuring out how to shape this movement. It's just about um, trying to figure out where where our place is and where we can contribute. Like, there, there, there are a lot of spaces where I, no matter what I said, would not be the best person uh, mm -hmm. to lead in that space. I mean, youth movements, uh, people of color, I mean, it, 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 it's remarkable the kinds of organizations that are being put together. Um, but if I can do something like interview a lot of these young folks and get that to a broader audience and center their voices and not center my voice, pull a little bit of a studs turple with this thing like you taught us, Peter, um, who I never read before your class. I mean, this is the sort of thing that I think we, we need to think creatively about what our role is and not just being bystanders right. to what they're doing. But thinking like, what can I do based on my skill set to actually right. help them lead, but make sure that they're in the front doing this kind of organizing and that they feel supported. Because mm -hmm. Mikhail like said before, it like really sticks with me with the coach about just like that that, that applying of this double burden um, on you to both lead and then also forgive. And it's like we, 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 we have to have space where where people like myself are providing like actual material ideological and even emotional support mm -hmm. for the people who are doing who are so central to the work yeah i um wholeheartedly agree i'm thinking uh, this forgive piece i also i've often said that there you also have to be willing to say sorry you know i i'm a firm believer that sometimes sorry works it doesn't clear everything but sometimes that's what people also need to hear um, and you can't ask for forgiveness without apologizing to me. Um, and that's just something that I think you have to take with you. I, when I think about this change, I think for one, like you said, some of the stuff your, your uh, teenager is learning is from the hardest books that some of us don't want to touch, right? And some of it is, you know, TikTok dances where people are dancing in order to stay in an algorithm because they know they can't say it, but if they dance and show uh, show the captions of what they want to say, that's something that doesn't get uh, shadow banned and blocked and removed. And I think mm -hmm. what everyone has to do is kind of meet in that middle. Um, I say if 
I learned something on TikTok, <laughs> I'll Google it, right? And then get in this, this uh, rabbit hole of different things. Um, I, I would love to learn something on TikTok, and I do, and feel like I can go to my parents and be like, did you know this? Can you tell me more about this? Or I saw this thing on TikTok and this is what's happening. I've had so many conversations with you know parents and grandparents and friends of friends, and I saw this thing on TikTok and um, I saw this thing on Twitter and they said this is and this happened and you know my response from the response from my parents have been well yeah that happened too when and they give me another example and another history and another story and it's like this moment where we meet in the middle has allowed me to both take what I've learned here and take what I've learned here and kind of open up this view of something that I wouldn't know. Um, and I think, you know, understanding that you can learn in all ways. You can learn on TikTok, you can learn on Twitter. Um, and you can also learn in the hard theory books and the really long textbooks. Like both of these worlds can exist at the same time. Um, it doesn't have to just be, you know, go pick up this book. And it doesn't just have to be, well, it, you know, I'm only, if I'm not learning it online, I'm not learning it at all. Um, there's a, there's a, there's plenty of room for us to work together in the middle to kind of continue to move forward. Both for that. Um, we are starting to get some. I can't hear you, Peter. Dave did. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. Um, that we are getting questions and if you're out there in the audience and you have a question, please type it into the chat on Zoom or the comment in Facebook. Um, so here's a question. Um, how might the sit-down strikes of the labor movement or the sit-in movement um, be compared to the kneel-in movement? Is part of the power of Kaepernick's kneel-in um, that it's such a natural thing uh, to do? Um, what do you think about those kinds? This is not my question, but I find it intriguing. What do you, what do you think about those connections, both of you, David and Mikkel? Um, I'm happy to jump in first. Sure. Um, we talked in like about three different modes of protest with three very different um, avenues towards power. Mm -hmm. Um. And, of course, when we talk about the sit-down strikes, you're talking about economic power because they're bringing production to a halt. When you talk about the sit-ins, you're talking about the, the disruption of mm -hmm. business as usual in a restaurant because of their Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. And you are disrupting the business of a Woolworths in Greensboro. You are disrupting, um, in 1930s, the power of production. And so then you have to ask yourself the question that's very interesting. What the hell is Colin Kaepernick disrupting? <laughs> uh -huh. What the hell are these other folks who've taken me? What are they disrupting? And we have to be able to answer that question. I would argue that they are practicing a supreme ideological disruption. Mm -hmm. Because the difference in what between what they're doing, which is very distinct from the other two, is they're taking that knee during the national anthem. And within when you do that, when you make that direct kind of challenge and affront to the national anthem, what you are saying is that there is a mammoth yawning gap, a chasm between what this country promises and what it delivers, between what it says it stands for and the actual lived experiences of black and brown people in particular, and also how you can have this home of the free and all the rest of it, home of the brave and all the rest of it, land of the free, while you have an inequality gap 
which renders any sort of advancement almost null and void for vast, vast, vast numbers of the population. So it's a different kind of disruption, but it's a disruption all the same. And one in which we're seeing the power of reverberate to this day. Yeah, and just to quickly add on, I think um, absolutely the disruption is uh, different, but it is a disruption. I always would say like, when, well, what happened? That was always something we were addressing. Well, what are you going to do next? You can't just, you're just going to kneel and that's it. And it's like, we've created this whirlwind of conversation from people. Like I said, um, there are people who, you know, uh, we called them boosters at the time. And they were older people in the community who would kind of like take in um, people from the team. If you're from, you know, the East Coast and your parents came to all the games, they would come and support you and things like that. We're having conversations that we would not have, that they, I firmly believe that they are not having, you know, with their immediate family, with people they are running into, um, where, where it's, we're opening doors and starting conversations, um, even the people who didn't want to hear it, right? I, you know, it's probably bad, but it seemed as like they would come to these games and be so fumed to see us kneeling and they would stay and watch and watch us win and watch us be successful and you know that that had to have just you know really peeved them right but at that same time this disruption to what is so regular to them right it had to sit um in their mind it had to, they had to sit with that even even if it was just for that you know how long is the national anthem a minute and a half if that but they had to really sit with that and it didn't oh it was never oh they nailed it's over you know let's get back to basketball, it wasn't that. People continued to talk about it. Um, and decisions were made after those moments. So a disruption, although different, but still a disruption as well. I, I really resonate to the insights you're both sharing. And I'm thinking, Dave, of one of those books of 150 years ago that your daughter might look at, the volume one of Marx's Capital. And uh, and the idea of the, the reproduction of that capitalism is a system of reproduction as well as production. And, and my mentor, Freddie Perlman, and his pulling out uh, from that chapter a, a book called The Reproduction of Daily Life. And, and how, that, how important, if we're not disrupting it, then we're participating in its reproduction. Um, and I love Mikkel's point that even if it's only in a minute and a half, it stays with people. And obviously the energy that both of you are engaged with and, and riding with is an energy that has persisted and grown and morphed coming out of that action. Go, go ahead, Dave. Oh, just... Uh, um I actually, one of the people I interviewed said quite explicitly um, that uh, if I could be, um, if I've made you uncomfortable for two minutes, then maybe you understand how I feel every day. And I think maybe that's part of it too, is you are turning a mirror on a population that doesn't always want to see. Yeah. So we, we have a question for Mikhail. Um, are you still in touch with your teammates? And 
you know, how did those experiences in 2016 stay with them and what are they carrying with them into the work that they're doing now? If you know. Um, yes. Yeah. So um, a few, some closer than others. Um, I know for a lot of us, like I said, I went on and, you know, I graduated that year. So, you know, after the season, uh, you know, I fell off the, the face of the basketball sphere. Um, but some of them, you know, I know the next year was really hard. Um, uh, they always joke because they, I think at the end I was painted as this rebel who was leading the team down this trail of destruction. Um, and it may be, may be true, <laughs> but also I think it, it was hard for them that next year. Um, for me, I was like, you know what? It's so easy to wash my hands here. Um, and for some of them, it wasn't. They had to come back. And I, you know, I would distinctly uh, remember talking. I'd still talk to one teammate more than um, some of the others, though we were, you know, we were in touch when we all got that phone call in, in 2020 about what's going on. Um, but it was really brief and, and, and checking in, making sure you're okay. But one in particular, she, you know, she actually was, I had a horrible time. I, um, we were not allowed to kneel the following year. Not only that, but no one picked up the same way. It wasn't the same pushback um, in demand. And I think with people, some people, you know, whispering about it, um, it was easy to kind of just, you know, skirt under and fly really low and we don't have to talk about it. And I think that was both the good and the bad of my relationship there. I felt that I could, um, in the beginning, that I could talk to my coaches and I could you know, make this statement and feel that I would get supported in some way. And it, it's it's unfortunate to know that the next year, those same people who, you know, were standing with me or, you know, kneeling with me in this sense, um, didn't feel like they had that power. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there were things in place that happened and put them in that space, but it just, it's rough. And I, I talked to, like I said, one in particular, and, you know, we, we are following and looking, um, at things happening now at the university and with the team, I, I told them I, I'm stepping away. I unfollowed and muted. I just, it, it was not right to me to now see all of these things being put on. And it was, it was better for me. I can move on and be okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was, I know it was really tough that next year, uh, feeling that one, um, the person who may have, you know, put it put more on the line I, I also was in a unique position i had a career ending injury my last year so the maybe fear of not playing or fear of losing playing time didn't exist to someone who didn't play um i was willing to take take that step because of other other things that i'd set up in that that time frame that allowed me to um so yeah that i know that next year was really really tough and i know it's something we you know still are thinking about to this day um, those experiences, even though we, you know, I always joke and say, I'm over it, I'm over it, but I keep talking about it and I, maybe I'm not over it and that's okay. I don't have to be over it, but I can continue to, you know, share this story and the ways that I've grown from it to, to move forward in life. Thank you. Um, I want to take another question that was directed at Mikkel, um, about mostly about the environment at UC San Diego, but 
I, I want to ask this a little bit differently than the questioner uh, raised. Um, we saw this last year, um, this very, in the academic world, this very interesting development that uh, the University of North Carolina refused uh, to offer tenure to Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, they got pushback. They changed their position. She told them she didn't want it anymore, and she decided to go to Howard. Tanahasi Coates also announced that he was going to Howard. Mikhail, I know that you spent time at Howard uh, after UC San Diego. Um, what do you think about the different environments and different institutions of higher education like UC San Diego, like Howard, and if you're willing to talk about it, like the University of Minnesota? And, you know, what are your particularly African-American students experiencing um, in these different kinds of institutions? And as, as you started out today talking about coaches and how coaches could be supportive or not, what about administrations and faculty mentors and the environment in different academic institutions. What, what can you offer us about that? Um, I think, uh, I mean, I just feel like I should also say it's, um, I went to UC Santa Barbara. Um, I don't want, you know, a strongly worded email from UC San Diego oh, oh, oh. Cal. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's okay. I just wanted to, just to clear that up. I think for me, <laughs> so, um, it was, I remember meeting with some um, Black Studies professors and getting their support in a way that was more than just um, faculty or people that you know have taught me in the past, but you know their support as Black people on this campus, their support as Black women on this campus um, meant a lot, and it was reassuring to hear you know like you're fighting the right fight like don't give in it's tough and getting that support in a way that i didn't feel like i was getting um it really it just i think it set the tone for me in a way that i wasn't expecting and that trans transferred over to my time at howard um <clears throat> you know i remember i remember writing that in my you know my uh you know my letters of my application and things like that it was you know, I had spent a time in a unique place where I didn't have um, as many black mentors and faculty members and people that I could just feel like, like I could be myself and feel comfortable in and going into this space and it being interested in what I want to be interested in what I want to do. I, I need that. I, I want that. I, I crave that. I like that will make this this worthwhile to me. And um, it was a world of difference. I, you know, I didn't, I, the explanations to following why um, never happened. Well, why are you kneeling? And there wasn't a person at Howard that asked me that. I didn't need to provide that explanation. They knew why. Um, they, they knew the, the experience I was feeling. They understood where I was coming from, my perspective. Um, it was just a different, a different ball game being in that space. Um, like, you know, not always, uh, not always having to answer that why is a game changer in, in some way. Um, 
but that just, like I said, that doesn't mean that that didn't happen for me at UC Santa Barbara. Like I mentioned, there were um, the BSU organization, they came out and supported um, various members of, you know, the Chicana and Chicana Studies Department and associations and orgs, they came out and supported. Um, it was being passed around from people who, you know, both knew me, but knew other members on the team, heard the story, watched, uh, seen it in, you know, the local newspaper and things like that. So having that support was so you know, mind blowing. And I think even more mind blowing when we didn't have that support and then got that support, it was like, you know what, this isn't, you know, uh, falling on the ears of no one who's listening. People are listening. People are supporting. People are believing. Uh, people are standing behind us. People are rooting for us. Even when it seemed like the people that we wanted to root for us the most weren't. Um, it really was a game changer for, for that experience. It it was tough. and it, But knowing that that one game in particular when everyone came and, you know, we had a section that went all the way back and they sat there in, the, in, in silence and they just, it was a moment that I'll never forget knowing that this is what support's supposed to feel like. This is what it's supposed to feel like to, to do something and, you know, feel uplifted by your community. Um, it really is a game changer and, and it did a lot for us, I think, in a time where we felt like, what, what are we doing? What do people see? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, so we have a question about uh, veterans and what might either of you, and I expect more likely Dave, um, you know, what do you know about incidents of veterans taking a knee in solidarity with athletes, with the cause of Black Lives Matter? Um, I think, Dave, you and I might have had a little bit of an exchange in the last week that my old friend Jerry Lemke reached out and said that he would be watching, joining us today. And Jerry wrote this remarkable book, The Spitting Image, about the way Vietnam veterans both were treated and uh, the ways that working class veterans responded to their experiences in Vietnam. So. What do you know, Dave, about what kind of a space the military has been um, for any of this kind of symbolic protest? Well, one thing I can say is that as soon as Colin Kaepernick took his knee and as soon as the spurious and scurrilous charges started being levied against him as it being an anti-military gesture, and by the way, I also want to say it was not an anti-military gesture, but honestly, mm -hmm. so what if it was? Mm -hmm. You know, it's your right to protest whatever the hell you want. I mean, your boss is imposing a national anthem on you with a militaristic surroundings. If you want to say, I, I actually disagree with the motives of the U.S. state and I'm going to take a knee and I'll suffer the consequences, if so be it. So sometimes I think... Uh, folks might have been a little too sensitive about the charges that it was somehow anti-military but i also understand it because it's like you know you know it's an okie doke you know it's a very very public and obvious way to um to alter consciousness about what he's doing and it's a way to avoid talking about police violence which they do not want to talk about and they especially don't want to talk about quite frankly the connection between the military and police violence whether we're talking about training, whether we're talking about equipment, or whether we're talking about an open door from troops who come back from overseas and immediately have jobs in a police department, um, which is problematic for a lot of reasons. But 
as soon as Colin Kaepernick took his knee, an organization started called Vets for Cap um, that just made very clear that they understood that the motivations were not aimed at the military and that they supported his right. You know, they, the, the basic line was, you know, we went to fight precisely so Colin Kaepernick could have the freedom to do what he's doing. And at least as an online presence in that first fateful fall of 2016, that was very, uh, very intense and very appreciated at the time as well, both by Colin and by people who were trying so hard to keep the framing on the question exactly with the original knee. Thank you. And I, I didn't know about Vets for Cap, and that's definitely something to, in the world of social media at least, to Google and see what we can find out uh, about them. Um, we have a question uh, about uh, kind of the, you know, here we are, Dave, you mentioned 10 years since Occupy. We started out just a month ago with 20 years since 9-11. And, um, and I'm the guy that wants to talk about what changes and what doesn't change. Um, and so, you know, was there a kind of political consensus that began to be spun after 9-11 and ways that professional sports were used whether playing the national anthem or what would go on, you know, the seventh inning stretch that listens to America the Beautiful or, you know, were there, were there ways that part of this disruption that we were talking about earlier, that, that there was a, not necessarily a conspiracy, but a kind of leveraging of professional sports by the dominant culture that then gets disrupted by athletes taking a knee and, um, and, and this political consensus itself um, at least wobbles, if not sh cracks. Mm. You first, Mikhail. <laughs> um. You knew I was still thinking, Dave. That's cheating. I'll go. I'll um, roll. <laughs> you want, I, I can roll. That was a big question for it's sure. It's a big question. Um, I mean, I'll start uh, just by saying that, you know, folks should read uh, The Heritage by Howard Bryant, uh, which is an interesting book um, because it's about 9-11, um, the militarization of sports and how that we have to understand that if we also are going to understand this modern revolt of the black athlete. Mm -hmm. One is very connected to the other. And um, it, it, the, the interesting thing about the book is that it actually started as a book just about the role of 9-11 in sports. Mm. And then as Howard was writing it, you have, um, I interviewed Howard about the book. As he's writing it, you start seeing protests. So then it, the, the whole thesis of the book changed for him because it's like, whoa, does one have anything to do with the other? And the answer is it certainly does because it what it does is it takes the anthem. And, you know, the anthem is always a political statement. This particular anthem has a third verse, we do not sing because it's so racist. It was written by someone who owned enslaved people, Francis Scott Key. It's a war anthem. You know, there are a million things we can say about the anthem. Um 
But after 9-11, it wasn't just about supporting the, the flag and country and apple pie. I mean, it was about supporting a very specific military intervention overseas and the war on terror and the expectation that athletes would be cheerleaders for the war on terror is one of the things that chafed up against the reality of living in racist America. And so, you know, oh, we're supposed to extol and support this country where they're killing people in the streets. As Colin Kaepernick said, where cops are committing, where people are dead in the streets and cops are getting away with murder. So um, I think that that contradiction ended up biting the NFL in the behind uh, because they wanted to be able, I mean, they had a financial partnership with the Pentagon mm-hmm. called Salute Service. And, um, and, and so to have that get undermined um, by kneeling athletes, by Colin Kaepernick, was so unacceptable. But you don't have the kneeling athletes, you don't have Colin Kaepernick without the buildup of politics and bombast that you see in the lead up to 2016. Thank you. Mikkel, anything you want to add to that? Um, I guess not so much. I was just thinking the same thing, uh, how you were saying it's these cheerleaders were expected to, you know, kind of take on that role. Um, and I almost feel like it goes back to that, the grateful argument we were discussing, mm-hmm. um, that again, uh, how could you not do this or believe this? Like you should be grateful that you have the opportunity to do this, right? Um, you know, there are so many people in the world who wish they could be in your position and you choose to tarnish it by, you know, demanding equality and justice. Um, and that's not something that sits well with the people in charge. So I guess that's really all I would add, but it, it really just sits with that grateful feeling again, um, this expectation that you're not allowed to be different. You should be on the same page with everyone else because you should be grateful to have the position that you have. Thank you. So, um, Dave, you know that the labor movement and unions are important to me, to the Eastside Freedom Library, to our visions of how America can change. We've been embroiled in very interesting conflicts here in the Twin Cities and I'm sure elsewhere about the role of police unions, the role of police, security guards, correctional officers within unions, um, what kind of stance should unions and the labor movement take around issues of racial justice. I know that in your work, um, particularly looking at the NFL, uh, that you've had a relationship with the leadership of the NFL Players Association. Um, I think that in, in the world of studying labor, as well as studying movements for racial justice, I think we often struggle with what's a defeat and what's a victory and what's a bit of both. And um, what do you make of what the NFL Players Association has or has not done uh, to stand with Colin Kaepernick? Well, 
I, I interviewed the uh, executive director of the NFL Players Association, Demora Smith, days after Kaepernick first made his stance. And, you know, th they said that they supported the right of players to express themselves. So they gave ideological support to Colin. Um, but the two sides, and, you know, everybody has a side about why these things don't happen. The two sides couldn't really come together and figure out an action plan that involved the union. And I think that's that was a real error and mistake. Whose fault it was, I'm not going to mm -hmm. adjudicate that here. But it was it it was it's a damn shame because the union felt like it was in a position to help with the struggle. But you know it takes two to dance, and they couldn't work out the dance steps. So there was ideological support, but there was no basis whatsoever for some sort of action support. Like they could have done um, a sympathy strike for one week, you know, to have Colin resigned. They could have done um pickets they could have they could have been very creative actually they could have done online campaigns i mean colin kaepernick was colluded against i mean that goes against you know everybody in the union that that represents a threat to every last union member and it should have been a union issue because this is what i've been saying from the beginning this is a labor issue this whole thing is a labor issue because yes, it's about police violence. Yes, it's about racial inequity. It's also about the fact that labor, I said this before, but labor and racial discipline is essential for the operating of the National Football League. And when and it's extremely autocratic. And when you have somebody who acts against that, then you're not acting with labor discipline. And then things get uh, very, very, very uh, uh, thorny for all involved. Back to, um, again, about the time that you were at McAllister in the mid-90s, uh, there was quite an ongoing struggle at the Ford uh, plant in St. Paul about management trying to get workers to do more work and workers being in often the difficult position as an individual of saying to a foreman, um, this is not in my job description. I won't do this. And it led to workers being disciplined, um, several days off without pay, then several weeks off, and then the threat of discharge. And the one thing that the union did do is they created a fund to make the workers whole for any loss of pay that they they might have experienced. And I wonder about, you know, what Colin Kaepernick has struggled with materially in the time since, I mean, he's been blacklisted and, and without income. Um, yeah. And that, it, it just seems that's chilling for everybody, not just yeah. terrible for him, but chilling for everybody. It has a chilling effect. There's no question. And I mean, I, I've had other people say, like, why, why don't we talk about this more? I mean, you actually have somebody who's been prevented from doing the job for which they are capable and qualified because of their political speech. And you know, th that that is extremely chilling on, on a whole host of fronts. Um, and Colin Kaepernick, you know, he's got a bunch of projects coming out this year. Uh, he's done uh, commercials with Nike, although it is worth pointing out that, that that connection with Nike preceded the knee. So, you know, you could look at this as Nike 
for all the criticism they got for doing a Colin Kaepernick commercial. I mean, it was kind of like the biggest no duh in the world. When you have them under contract, you do something with that. Uh, some people have said to me, oh, Colin Kaepernick is a, is a figure who stands for social justice. He shouldn't be doing work with Nike. And I'm kind of like, yeah, like I'm not some Nike booster or anything. But as you said, Peter, the guy has to earn something. And what, what, what's, he, what's he supposed to do at that point? He's being prevented from making what he should be making and doing what he should be doing. And uh, that's... And then he has a lot of projects coming out this year. He's got, a, you know, people might know about this, like a Netflix uh, thing coming out with Ava DuVernay. He's got a book coming out. So I think we're going to hear a lot from Colin Kaepernick in the coming year. That's great. That's great. So um, we're starting to run low on time. I wonder if each of you might say a little bit about what's, what's coming up for you. Uh, where where do you think the next year or two is going to take your focus um, in in the work that you're doing? And Mikel, I'd love to hear more about the way you're looking at social media and young women of color and how that where where you're going with that research. Um, sure. So for me, um, you know. A lot of big dates as a PhD student are coming up, you know, all the, the reading and writing, I'm, I'm moving into that stage, so a lot of that. Um, but as far as my research is concerned, I, I always open up by telling people when I was, you know, 12, I had, you know, that one Disney Channel show, That's So Raven, that all the other Black girls were watching. Um, and that was really it. And if it was, it was older stuff that maybe I couldn't watch, you know, or, um, things that I just didn't really feel like I could place myself. Um, and now I can't, there's TV shows and versions of things for everyone. There's access to online. Um, it's, it's a whole new world that's really being opened up. And I think that's what's like uh, so cool, but also really, really tough. I trying to figure out who I was trying to be at 12 and 13 was hard enough and I didn't have Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, um, all, all access all the time to kind of encourage or discourage me from doing uh, different things with life. And I was becoming myself with the immediate things around me, with my family, with my teammates, with my friends. And now um, we see that there's, you know, I always say that social media is another group, another, another peer group, another friend group another team, uh, another team that you're dealing with, you know, an additional cousin. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's its own kind of function in our, in our lives now. Um, and it's a lot, I, you know, I'm, I'm 26 and it's a lot for me as an adult. And I can't imagine being 12, 13, 14, trying to balance the same things. Um, so that's really what I'm interested in and why I think it's so critical to focus on because we're, we're just not talking about it in that way. Um, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, it's it's not just entertainment. It's not just scrolling on Twitter. Twitter now, you know, when Twitter started in what 2006, it was hey, on my way to get a burrito, uh, catch me at Chipotle, right? And now it's the president uses Twitter. Um, we were getting notifications about a global pandemic through Twitter. Um, People are using Facebook to connect. People are using TikTok to 
you know, learn about um, so many different things and breaking algorithms. And um, it's, it's, it's more than just online scrolling, you know, a waste of time as, you know, parents might, might assume it's more than that. And it's giving um, adults, but also, you know, adolescents, teenagers, so much more than just fun and entertainment. Um, and I think that that's, we're living in a really special time to kind of look at that, those things. Thank you. And, and Dave, I know you're in a whirlwind of promoting the Kaepernick effect and that you're doing events virtually with the nation and with the progressive and I'm sure lots of other platforms as well. Um, have you thought about beyond getting this book into people's hands? Uh, what, what, well, where do you want to go next? I mean, Peter, part of why it's tough too is that I, I really do feel a sense of mission with this book. Um, I'm taking any money I make from this book and it's going to a group called Serve Your City DC, which did amazing mutual aid work mm -hmm. when the pandemic uh, first hit in DC. And uh, Serve Your City bought 500 copies of the book and they put them in backpacks to give to the kids. Great. Um, you know, and, and it's just like, I, I really want to see how far we can take this of making Serve Your City grow as an organization of making young people feel confident that, you know, other people did it. You know, I thought, Peter, you'd appreciate that one person said I should have called the book what to expect when you're protesting because <laughs> yeah. there's so many scenarios that come out of in the book. Like, what does your coach do? What do your teammates do? How do you respond to this? When do you respond to that? Like, there are all these different, um, almost like, like, like case studies is a word, but what's that thing where, where you role play? It's almost mm -hmm. like you can role play through the stories in the book and figure out what you have to deal with. So I really want to see this through to the oomph degree, even more than anything I've ever done. Um, after that, yeah, I've got some ideas percolating. You know, you always got to get percolating a little bit here. Um, but, you know, I'll, 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 I'm going to play those cards close to the vest until I have something concrete to offer. Great. Well, I want to encourage everyone, obviously, to buy the book, The Kaepernick Effect. Uh, here at the Eastside Freedom Library, we like to encourage people to use independent bookstores, um, and um, of which there are many. Um, I also want to extend an invitation to everyone uh, to come on into the Eastside Freedom Library. We're still asking people to make appointments and commit to wearing a mask, but we have all 10 of Dave's books come on in and read, they get a whole shelf to themselves. Uh, come on yeah. in and, and, and read some of them. Um, this, this event was originally conceived and to some degree has continued to be a fundraiser for the Eastside Freedom Library. And we appreciate all of you who made donations as part of registering to watch this event. You could give more. Uh, and you can go to our website and hit that donate button um, and, and help us fund more events and more projects and activities. Um, I, I want to say about, about Dave that he visited us, I bet, five years ago, maybe six years ago. And when I picked him up at the airport, um, 
he said, I understand the nurses are on strike uh, at, at United Hospital. Uh, would you take me to the picket line before we go on and do anything else? And this is, this is a man after my heart and, uh, and, and very much deeply connected to the work that we're doing here at the Eastside Freedom Library. And it means the world to me, Dave, that you're out there and doing what you're doing and, um, and how much hope you give me and, and the rest of us. And, and that for this event that you've introduced us to Mikkel, and who has now outed herself as 26 years old. And uh, she's a young person to me. And, uh, and I'm really excited by the new chapters that you're turning and uh, what we're going to learn about social media and particularly what young women of color are going to learn from you both directly and indirectly through social media. And um, not to put a big burden on your shoulders, but they look pretty sturdy to me, and, uh, and I know you'll be doing great work. So um, I also, again, want to thank my colleagues, uh, saying Manny Rats about Carla Reilly and Clarence White uh, for their work in making this technology work. You folks out there don't know that we were scared to death as late as 3.59 and small change, that something was wrong with the way, it, but it worked. And, uh, and they kept their cool, and, um, and, and we pulled this off. So, um, Mikkel, Dave, any last comment you want to make before we turn off for the evening? Uh, just for a thank you from me, you know, Dave, like, I, I think I told you last time, it's always fun talking to you, you're just... You know, you give this really cool, passionate energy that people just can easily vibe with. So thank you for including me with this um, and just allowing me to be here. And Peter, thank you to you too. I can't wait to come to the library. I already told you I'm going to be there. I, I promise I am. Um, so thank you both and just <laughs> thank for, you. for tuning in. Ah. Just, Mikhail, you, you bless the book and just grateful that you shared your experience. Uh, shout out to Elizabeth Wrigley Field, who I think is watching. She is. Who, uh, uh, introduced me to uh, Mikhail. I mean, really grateful about that. And Peter, I mean, what what can I say? When somebody who uh, you look to as a mentor when you were 19 years old says something as kind as you're saying to me now at 47, which is what I am, I'll out myself to, you know, that that's a that's a life gift. For real. Wow. I'll never forget that, Peter. Wow. Thank you for saying that. Thank and, you. And you still inspire me, Peter, with this library that, you, that you've gotten off the ground. I hope everybody supports it. Visiting it was felt more like a pilgrimage than a stop through by the time I was done looking through everything you had there. And uh, so everyone should support the, the, the library and everyone should know that you, you, you are in it for all the right reasons. And that's what makes you such a treasure. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. So my colleagues have just reminded me that we're actually going to have a little bit of an informal, um, some time for informal chat. Um, I don't know how they're going to pull it off, but uh, if you're out there in Zoom land, uh, you will be allowed to reveal yourselves. Is that what's going to happen, Carla? And they have to log off to David and 
Oh, and these two, Dave and, and Mikkel, have to log off of the razzle-dazzle system that we were on and join the rest of us on Zoom. Uh, good luck uh, doing that, but uh, probably Elizabeth Wrigley Field and others would love to have a moment with you here virtually. Are you cool with that, Dave? Or I, I, I might, I'm, I'm a bit of a techno uh fool uh -huh. i'll do my weirdest is all I'll, I'll i'll try okay so there may be a a moment of fear here for all of us but hopefully <laughs> we will we will reunite well clarence you have explicit directions yeah. no clarence says there were a lot of questions we didn't get to oh okay oh so they'll come up in the chat <laughs>